As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook and I'm joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Eccleshare. And to celebrate Black Friday, we're giving you the chance to subscribe to The Athletic for our best ever price. It's just £1 per month for a full 12 months and you can cancel at any time. So you can access all of The Athletic all year long, including all of our podcasts ad-free. We will bring you unrivaled coverage of Spurs and the Premier League for an unbeatable price, and we won't be running a better deal anytime soon. This offer runs up until the 4th of December, so don't miss out. Charlie, what have you written for The Athletic about the 0-0 draw at Stamford Bridge? Uh, Well, it was a defence of the defensive approach, essentially. Uh, I thought it was a really good result for Spurs, and not the most exciting game, but a point that I think, you know, you go away to the team that's third, one of your big rivals, get a draw without being too troubled defensively is is pretty good. James, you sound like you probably agree with Charlie. Yeah, completely. I mean, I, I, I think as Charlie wrote in his piece, you know, if the team third in the Premier League aren't willing to take any risks to try and, you know, throw players forward to break you down, it, it's for a reason. It's because they're terrified of what you might potentially do on the counter-attack at the other end of the pitch. And that's like the reputation that Spurs have earned over the last 10 games. So, have no problem with the way they approach that game. It's a shame they couldn't create an opportunity on the counters to win it, but, you know, top of the league, who can complain? Indeed. Well, if you go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod, that's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod, and pay just £1 per month for 12 months. This offer is for new subscribers only. Charlie, you were on Jose Mourinho's press conference afterwards. What was his mood like? Did he did he look proud of the 0-0 draw? Well, yeah, actually, like, just building on what James was saying, like, I, it did strike me that that felt like a clean sheet very much earned by, in part by Tottenham's attacking threat and Chelsea's fear of um, overcommitting. And so I put that to Mourinho and said, you know, because he, he'd spoken about uh, how, you know, Chelsea had treated them with a lot of respect. And so I asked him how much that was to do with... Um, you know, with with the threat of Kane and Son and all of those guys going the other way, and and he 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 went on to then talk about the fact that he said it wasn't fear necessarily, but it was definitely respect. Uh, and I think he then talked about the fact that it was also a sense of responsibility from uh, from Chelsea. So I think he he sensed that as well, and I think he you know he made the point that that James and I felt after the game that really. You know, if if Chelsea had gone at them and, you know, they'd been really attacking and, you know, gambled and made attacking substitutions late on, I think, you know, there might be a slightly different feel about it. But as it was, it felt to me, and I think most people watching, uh, like a game where both teams were really, really not wanting to lose. And that includes Chelsea almost just as much as Tottenham. And for both, the point was was kind of fine. I mean, there was the whole thing, you know, Mourinho, perhaps it was a little bit provocative, him talking about the fact that uh, Spurs were disappointed not to win the game, um, you know, which then prompted Roy Keane 
to call him out on that and say that wasn't the case. Um, but I think realistically, you know, it's, it, he was pretty pleased with the point. Uh, you know, you go away to a big rival and restrict them to not really a lot. Four clean sheets in five games now, one conceded in that time. Top of the league. It's, it's a really good weekend for them. James, you, it sounds like you're pretty... Um, you're on board with the Mourinho approach, despite the kind of obvious aesthetic concerns that lots of people have about the performance. I mean, in a, in a game like that, I have absolutely no objection to it. And, you know, as I said before, like the, the plan, I guess, is to soak it up and then try and strike on the counter-attack. And actually... I, Kane couldn't really get into the game, I guess mainly because I had Kante sat on him for pretty much the entire game. And he's probably, I mean, he's certainly the best player at the Premier League in terms of doing that kind of job in midfield. Um, you know, restrict, restricting an opposition player, playmaker usually, obviously, I guess that's kind of how we see Kane now. Um, in fact, I mean, maybe even the only one who you, you would say could do that probably in the Premier League. I, I can't really think of anyone else who could like sit on Kane and stop him from either creating or getting any chances. Um and Son also had one of those games that we've talked about before that he does occasionally have. And he has had a couple of times in the last couple of weeks where he's kind of struggled to make things work and nothing's quite come off from really. And he's sort of on the periphery a little bit. Uh, and had either one of those two players, you know, managed to have a couple of good moments and perhaps Spurs could have nicked it or certainly looked like they were more of a threat. Uh, and as it was, Spurs better players, I guess, were the defensive players really. And I know we're going to talk about... Um, Joe Roden and Serge Aurier in a minute, and I guess maybe Hoiberg as well. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't have any objection to the way they played there. I mean, I, I think last week we talked about the difference between the Man City game last weekend and the Man City game in January, uh, sorry February, when you know in the February one, with the benefit of hindsight, I think you could probably say it was a bit of a fluke. Whereas last Sunday, last Saturday, sorry, it felt like they had control of that game to an extent, you know, it felt like a plan rather than just something that happened. And I kind of feel like I would compare this game, I was kind of say that the comparison sort of similar here in that this game, you know, that they went there with a plan to, to restrict Chelsea and they really did do that. And the other half of the plan, obviously, kind of creating Chelsea and the counter-attack didn't come up. I'd say it's kind of almost more of a failing of that attack than being especially negative. To pick up on that, James, firstly, um, you know what you said straight away is that uh, right, right at the start, you know you're happy with that for, with that approach for that particular game is I think really important because Spurs have averaged more than two goals a game. Only Liverpool and Chelsea have scored more than them, and they've scored one more each. Um, so it's not as if you know this is a continuation of a dour start to the season. Spurs have been really free scoring, and so you know you win titles by having different approaches for different matches. And then yeah, like we were talking about last week, you know fans when, when that debate is you know, normally <laughs> prompted not by fans, but by pundits and others, you know, of but will the fans be happy with this approach? You know, fans are savvy enough generally to know, as James says, when it's a backs to the wall bit of a fluke and when it's, you know, a product of well thought out planning and coaching. And yesterday was definitely the latter. My Twitter timeline after the game yesterday, without word of exaggeration, was literally like, alternated between journalists saying, what do Spurs fans make of this? Spurs fans can't possibly be happy with this. And Spurs fans <laughs> l literally explicitly saying, I'm happy with that. I'm delighted with that. I think there's a sensible approach. Just every other tweet was just alternating between those two. Uh, it's just absolutely, it kind of it, it crystallised what you just said there, really. Uh, you know, it, it's something I've talked about before and it, it's kind of the frustration for me of Mourinho being the manager, really. It's, it's the worst thing of it. The worst element of it is that it's not really the negative tactic. There's more people's perceptions of Mourinho and having to, you know, and, and they're entitled to their, have their opinions on him and the way he plays. It's, it's absolutely fine. But I just, it, it annoys me slightly when people's analysis of Spurs it always comes through that prison. 100%. I think, like, if that's any other man or most other managers, it's kind of a game you just sort of forget about and move on fairly quickly. And it's just, it's just a good point, isn't it? I don't, you know, it, but because Mourinho has 15 years of baggage and history, it does prompt, uh, that kind of discussion and navel gazing, um, and look, and we've talked about it before. Can you, should you divorce Mourinho now from his past? Obviously, it's important, but I think this was just, just a really, just a really good result. And um, yeah, I, I, I just don't think Chelsea really did enough to to change the pattern of the game. Had, had they backed themselves, had they changed the shape, had they made subs that weren't like for like, then then they they might have got a win, but they didn't, and. And ultimately, I don't think they can really complain. 
Yeah, and I think we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that Chelsea are behind Tottenham and Chelsea were at home. Mm. Like, if anything, there should be more. Of, there should be more. You know, I'm not here to. I know that I often take the kind of Mourinho critical, anti-Mourinho view on these kind of things, but Chelsea fans can sh- surely be more frustrated by the events of this game than than Tottenham fans. Chelsea really needed to win this game, and they didn't. And also, Chelsea have got a really good record against Spurs, and they didn't win it. And it wasn't like Chelsea created loads of amazing chances. I mean, I think they had that the Mason Mount shot that Lloris made actually like a really, really good save from. The, the, the chance at the end where Roden kind of misjudged that bounce and Giroud had that sort of shot that I guess he Yeah, they had three shots bit. on target all game. Three shots on target, two of which were in the last 10 minutes. Which I, I would guess is probably what, like two more than Spurs had maybe, but I guess. But um, I know we talk about XG every week and you're taking the piss out of me. Oh, I love XG. I, I think... Um, Chelsea had like 0.93 and Spurs had like 0.22 or something like that. So according to Opta, because I, um, I I know how much you enjoy this, James, I did actually check this before. And according to Opta, Spurs had 0.19, which was by some distance their lowest of the season. And uh, Chelsea had 0.83, which was actually the second, oh no, the third lowest uh, of an opposing team against uh, Spurs this season. So yeah, I mean, 0.83 plays 0.19. Like, I mean, it's supposed to go through the season and they beat the top sides at home and draw away. And then they do a job in, you know, most of the rest of the games against the rest of the league. They're going to have a very good chance of winning the Premier League, aren't they, ultimately? Yeah, I mean, I was I put in the piece, like, that. you know, when, when you're in, when, when you're competing for titles, you have to think of, like, small uh, kind of episodes, I guess. And this is the start of that big, uh, which we talked about, we built up so much before, this pretty savage run of games. First two of them, Four points, no goals conceded. That's absolutely, you know, you know, at par if not better. It kind of feels like that's more momentum than than like winning two 0 last week and then drawing three three against Chelsea. Do you know what I mean? It kind of feels like not conceding goals gives you that's like a platform to build on. It's just going to give them a lot of confidence. Um, I, you know, Spurs have never been like a defensively solid team really, so to kind of see them go into two games against two of the top sides, massive spending sides with like incredible players, especially attacking players, and to come out of two clean sheets, particularly in this last game without Alderweireld. I mean, I think that is a massive testament to how well organised they are. And you can't like look beyond the manager there. I mean, I think that is, that is incredible. Also, I just feel like they have, they've earned the right to not try to win this game, if you know what I mean. Like, they're ahead of par. They just beat Manchester City the other day. They beat Manchester City really, really well. They smashed Manchester United a few weeks ago. Like, if anything, they have, you know, they've earned the right to just try and take a point and stop Chelsea from catching up with them and then take it on to the next game. Um, I don't feel, yeah, I like, you know, I didn't enjoy watching it. I thought it was rubbish. But, uh, I, and I also think that, you know, a little bit like the Man City Liverpool won all the other week. Like, it was a game where the first half was better than the second half because, there was at least some a bit more attacking play in the first half, and then by the second half, the players looked a bit tired as well. And when when both teams are so obviously so obviously happy with the draw, you're never going to get a good second half. And that, frankly, we're going to see we're going to see so much of that this season because of the insane schedule and the like. Managers are going to managers are basically going to like withdraw their chips effectively at half time and fold and just like fine, we'll just take a draw a lot. I think. I mean, it's interesting what you say about that first half actually, because there was a spell of like. I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes, kind of in the middle of that first half, where Spurs, it was Spurs that had Chelsea penned in. Yeah. And it looked like Spurs were kind of the, the side who were like on the front foot. And that, you know, changed in the second half and they, they weren't able to exert themselves in the game in quite the same way. But it's not like that they were camped near to their own penalty area for the entire game. They were kind of a bit more dynamic in the first half. One thing I wanted to get your opinion on is uh, the decision to start Bergwijn ahead of Lucas or Bale. Um, I didn't think Bergwijn played great, was my impression, and I wondered whether may- maybe Lucas or Bale might have helped Tottenham to to break through Chelsea in one of those counter attacks that didn't quite come to anything. Charlie, what did you make of that decision and uh, and how it played out? Yeah, I mean, I think he uh, merited the start given how he played against City last week. I thought he played put in a really good shift there um, and offered something, um, you know, in the final third as well when when Spurs did break. And I, and I actually thought it was a similar performance um, yesterday. Uh, I thought, you know, he certainly in the first half, he looked dangerous. He looked sharp. He had that chance uh, where he, he worked it really well and then put it over. Um, and I thought he, he um, 
his final ball let him down on a couple of occasions. There was that counter where he tried to play it kind of first time into, I think it was Son over on the other side and it got intercepted. Um, but I think, you know, I, I was happy with him starting and I think he, he just about justified it. I mean, a, a few people were asking me in the Q&A after, you know, why had he lasted as long as he did? Because he came off only really in the closing stages. And, you know, when you think, as you say, there was Mora, there was also Bale who, um, you know, either of those you would have thought could have done a similar job. Maybe Bale not so much defensively, but certainly Lucas and he would have been uh, that bit fresher. But... Um, yeah, I thought I thought he I thought he was okay. It'll, it'll be interesting now though to see whether he keeps his place against Arsenal, especially given that um, Mora in that equivalent fixture last season was was brilliant as a kind of you know false wing back hybrid, um, you know putting in tackle after tackle. So um, yeah, I mean, but again, as we always say, it's just really nice to have those options. I just want to dig into two more individual performances. Joe Roden, uh, Tottenham full debut. Uh, Charlie, what do you make of how he did? I thought he was fine. Um, I mean, a couple of shaky moments. He gave the ball away and was then caught out of position for Werner's goal that was disallowed in the first half. And then obviously the one James mentioned um, right at the end where he almost gifted Giroud a goal. So... I mean, I guess it's one of those, isn't it? Where if, if either of those mistakes are punished, then we're talking about it as a disastrous debut. But, you know, maybe he earned that bit of luck with, with otherwise he looked pretty composed. Um, he, you know, was was fully committed, as you'd expect. You know, he, he, he looked like he relished the challenge, both on the floor and in the air. Uh, so definitely a lot of promise. And, and Mourinho spoke you know, very highly of him after every, everyone in the club has done in the build-up to, to his anticipated debut. Um, so yeah, I thought signs of promise, but obviously, you know, it's uh, very early to judge him based just on on that one performance. I thought he looked pretty brave. Like a couple of times, he kind of stepped out to win the ball, whereas perhaps you'd expect a centre back, particularly an experienced one, to kind of try to you know like step back and make life difficult for the centre forward. But a couple of times, he kind of nipped in first and won the ball before the centre forward even got there, which I thought was pretty impressive. I think that was his very first contribution, actually, as well. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. And I did think that. I mean, without one to kind of defend quite a bad mistake too much. I did think that ball bounced incredibly awkwardly right at the end. Mm. And, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, obviously he should have just hooked it, like, back out, probably out for a throw-in off, off to his left-hand side over his shoulder. But, you know, I guess in the heat of the moment, he thought he had guided back to Lloris and he got it completely wrong. But, yeah, fortunately he got away with it. But I think, you know, I was quite impressed with him, the way he spoke after the game. He kind of gave the impression he wouldn't, like, rest on his laurels and sort of be satisfied of his performance that he wanted to... He wanted to improve on that in the next game. And, you know, as you say, we can't pretend that he didn't make a couple of mistakes because he did. But fortunately from the Spurs perspective, he got away with it and he's going to have to kind of improve on that sort of thing and learn from it. My personal take is that I just like watching aggressive risk-taking centre-backs. You know, I like watching centre-backs who try and nick the ball and try and, uh, you know, try and bring the ball out. And I, I really like the look of Roden. He's also really quick as well. And to be honest, given that, you know, centre-back is probably Spurs' weakest area, like, it's the area where they failed to do what they wanted to do in the summer. I mean, you know, in the sense they wanted, like, a big name in screening eye they didn't get. Um, you know, I think there's big there's question marks over, well, all of the all of their centre-backs, really, in the sense that Alder Weald's not as good as he was. Dyer is only just moving back to centre-back full-time, and Sanchez, you know, divides opinion, to put it mildly. Um, and frankly, I think if, if Roden can come in and iron out those mistakes and make himself a sort of solid player, then that's going to be a really big help to Tottenham. So I'm really, I'm kind of excited to see how he develops. So I feel quite like, I feel, yeah, I feel pretty positive about him. And also in a game like that, I mean, that's what you want, isn't it? A defender, like step out, win the ball. Totally, yeah, totally. Start a counter-attack. That's exactly what you want. Yeah, I think if you were saying like one, where's one, what's one thing Tottenham are lacking in this squad is kind of a pacey centre-back. So having someone who is, and you say, Jack, he's quick and that's something that, uh, people who've worked with him before said he is deceptively quick. That is potentially plugging a really important hole. And I and I do think as well, Dyer was really, really good again yesterday um, and has been uh, for the last few weeks, kind of just quietly getting on with it and making so many blocks and interceptions, but also just being in the right place, so not always having to do so. Uh, his distribution was a bit ropey yesterday, which Mourinho alluded to, but generally very solid. And you think back to that West Brom game, you know, that clearance he made under the bar and a game where, you know, where Spurs didn't play great and, and other players have to step up. That's what you do in a good team and a team that's challenging for a title. And, and he did that there. Um, and again, I think he helped Roden yesterday, um, you know, as the senior man, whereas normally he's playing with Alder Vyrald, who, uh, who kind of takes charge of things. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The first time I interviewed Neymar, he was 14. He was pretty much famous approaching household name status before he'd even played for the Santos first team. Barca should have been better prepared. They really did not have a contingency plan for if Neymar were to leave. You have the French president, Emmanuel Macron, calling it really good news on the day. Without selling Coutinho for that amount of money, Liverpool's recent history would be very, very different. But then again, Neymar changed the whole dynamic. I'm Adam Leventhal, and this is Beyond the Headline, Neymar, the transfer that changed the world. Over the next three episodes, we will explore Neymar's 222 million euro move from Barcelona to Paris Saint-Germain, a transfer that changed the game not only because it more than doubled the world transfer record, but explain how the ripple effects made it arguably the most significant transfer in the history of the game. That's Beyond the Headline, available wherever you get your podcasts or get it ad-free via the Athletic app. Uh, another player I wanted to talk about who impressed me yesterday was the great Serge Aurier. Charlie, what do you reckon? Well, I've been beating this drum for a while. Um, he's someone who I think has had a lot of unfair criticism. I think he's quite an easy target. I think there's a lot of confirmation bias with him where because he has made mistakes in the past and he's not always been the most consistent that if he does make a mistake, it's leapt on as evidence of, yep, see, he's, he's rubbish. And even, um, you know, last week, I was surprised, you know, before the City game, um, there was there was some talk of like, oh, no, we're going to have to play Aurier because Doherty was um, recovering from COVID. And there was some chat like, in, you know, I saw people being like, oh, maybe Tanganga can play instead of Aurier and all of this as if Aurier is like an absolute last resort liability. Like, he just absolutely isn't. He, he had a really good season last season. He was actually one of Tottenham's more consistent players. And this season, he's been really, really good. And I would put his first choice now ahead of Doherty. And yeah, credit to him because he very nearly left. Um, well, he nearly went this summer, but also the previous summer. He, he wanted out under Pochettino. He's really frustrated with how little he played the previous season or two. You know, he's behind Trippier. Uh, and he's he's come back and he's knuckled down. And he's a really popular guy at the club. Um, you know, really fun, uh, light-hearted, and yesterday he was just really, really good. That that moment early on where he chested it down, uh, really close to Larice in his own area, was very, very calm. Sort of thing I'm sure had everyone at home absolutely petrified. But yeah, and, and I'm sure now you know people say, "Oh, you'll jinx him and he'll make an error really soon." But I think he's been really, really impressive. And again, you know, we're talking about Mourinho, and can you, you know, can you just look at him without all the baggage? Well, I think Ari's another one. If he was a, you know. If you if you just look at him over the last as long as a season and a half, I would say really, um, I think he's just a really good Premier League fullback. James, I can't remember. Were you, are you like pro Aurier or anti Aurier? I mean, I think I've been quite critical of him on this podcast before. I don't know if that was what um, what Charlie was alluding to. No, I don't. Th- I don't think of you as a massive hater of him. I, I kind of think the truth is sort of halfway between. Maybe I mean he's been really good this season, and he was very good yesterday. He was very good against Manchester City and probably even better than that against Manchester United. But but I, I think it's it's an improvement rather than like a realisation that he's actually good. I think, I, I, and we shouldn't say he was consistently terrible before because I think the problem was that he was a bit a bit rash and erratic and there were a lot of good performances in between that, but that he just kind of always had the sense that there would be an error at some stage. But to me... I, I mean, maybe this is unfair on me reading way too much into things, but to me, it feels a bit more like his head is in the game a bit more at the moment. Like, it feels like he it, he is like fully focused on the match. And it's uh, before I kind of felt like it, it was almost like a thing that was happening around him and he wasn't like fully engaged with it, if you know what I mean. And now it feels like he's completely plugged in to like the intensity of the game and the dynamic of the game. And when things are switching and when things are le- more or less intense, he kind of seems to adapt his positioning, now, he, he, 
I mean, we probably haven't seen him get forward as uh, Old Trafford aside. We probably haven't seen him get forward as much as we did in certainly last season. I, I just feel like maybe he's taking slightly fewer risks and he's leaving himself exposed, I think, a little bit less. And and I just think like when you do that, you're obviously going to make fewer mistakes. That's just the way it works. Uh, and yeah, I think it's been really impressive. And I, you know, I, and I'm certainly not putting all the praise for that on Mourinho because you know, I'm sure he's helped him, but you can't like take away from the player because he must have done some incredible work to, to improve that much. He's also not having those moments where he would like just switch off and then an attacker would get in front of him and he'd switch back on and go, oh God, like fuck, he's got side and foul him and give away a pen. Like he's, that, that, that That's what I mean all. though. He kind of feels like he's constantly focused on the game. He doesn't have those moments where like the brain farts where like he'll lose focus for a second and then suddenly have to chase back, you know, to, to catch up with a winger or whatever. Mane at Anfield last season. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Where like he lost focus for like a nanosecond in that instance and then like the challenge is just that time a little bit too late and it's a penalty. I just, I, I can't tell what that is that can really have changed. But I, I, And again, again, maybe you're right, Charlie. Maybe he was just good before and he got a little bit unlucky of a couple of, in a couple of moments. But to me, it just feels like there's just a bit more kind of like, like focus and like assurance about him. I think a few things like... Um, one is that he it now feels like he's got the right balance of level of competition so I think under Pochettino he obviously had the competition in Trippier but he he felt that almost whatever he did he wasn't going to get a game and that's quite demoralising then obviously last season he would kind of play regardless and I actually think he was very good last season now he's got Matt Doherty and it does feel and we've, I've talked about this so often I bang this drum about meritocracy but I think Ori is a good example of that Someone who was, you know, half out the door in the summer and when Doherty came in, it was a question of, right, okay, well, when's Aurier going to leave then? Who's he going to go to? He has worked his way back and he has shown that if you play well in, say, a Europa League game or when you're given your chance because of players out, you will become first choice for however long. And he's done that really, really well. So I think that's helped him, that competition and that sense that, you know, you have to play well or you'll lose your place. But also if you do play well, you'll keep your place. I also think the shift in bringing Regulon into the team has made a big difference because now they are more balanced in that way. And you think last season they had, they played that kind of lopsided fullbacks thing, which meant Davis dropping in and playing as a third centre-back. Aurier was you know effectively playing as a winger, which was fine. That was what he was being asked to do. But the optics of that, often for supporters, is kind of like, well, he's meant to be a right-back. What is this guy doing? He's, you know, he's not defending properly. He's constantly out of position, even though that was essentially what he'd been instructed to do and that was you know part of what Sissoko was in the team to do was to cover for that so I think those things have all really helped him and you know sometimes it does you know we see that with players at something uh you know flick of a switch and they do they do just feel a bit more focused a bit more dedicated and I think all of that has combined to making this um just you know far, far more consistent build building on the improvement of last year and now he's doing it kind of every week I always thought Oreo is a really good player who did really bad things sometimes. And now he doesn't do that anymore. Like he's he's obviously really good at what he does. Like he's he's really good going forward. His delivery is pretty good. He's got a great sense of timing. His runs are good. He works hard to win the ball back. He's um you know, there aren't that many I don't think there are that many more talented attacking right backs out there than him in the Premier League. And he's managed to basically neuter his downside or cover up his downside this season. And what's great is if he does make a mistake, um, then you've got someone in Matt Doherty who's also really, really good of a similar level who can replace him. It's not like um, it would have been last season where he was clearly the first-choice right-back, kind of the only established right-back once Kyle Walker-Peters went and obviously Tanganga was just coming through and isn't a specialist in that position. So, you know, you, you see that often, that players, when they have more of that competition, they do step up. And what we're doing kind of... Um... Mourinho Mia Culpas uh, <laughs> I one thing that surprised me this year and that impressed me about Mourinho's management is that players who uh, basically Ndombele and Aurier who were both I mean Ndombele was obviously on the fringes last season and Mourinho was pretty critical of him and Aurier was a player who I thought would probably go in the summer and I think you know, Spurs were trying to sell in the summer and uh, he seems to have got a new level of consistency and motivation and performance out of those two guys this year, which suggests that, you know, he still has, he's still really effective at getting good performances out, out of younger players or fringe players in a way that might not have been expected. So I think he's done really, really well. So coming up this week for Tottenham uh, on Thursday night, another Europa League game, LASK Linz away, Charlie. Are we expecting the kind of the, the full second string? 
Mm, yes, probably. I think he'll do something similar to what he did um, in Thursday's game against Zuda Goretz, where he made 10 changes. I think we'll see something similar. I mean, they need a point to qualify. And obviously, it would be really annoying if they didn't get that point and then had to kind of name a stronger team for the final group game. But that final group game's at home against an Antwerp who may have already qualified. So, you know, I don't think they would... It's not like they'd need to go full strength in that game. But it, but irrespective of that, you know, this is a game that even with those changes, they should be getting a point. In the first game, they were far, far superior um, to Lask. And so I, I think I think Mourinho will be cheered by the fact that he was able to do that against Udegaretz and it it, it paid off. Um you know, and, and like how Ludogorets, we talked about being almost like a bridge to the Chelsea game. Um, similarly, you know, this is, you have half an eye on, on the Arsenal game, which is a strange one because they're doing so badly that it's not, in, in terms of just calibre of opposition, it's suddenly a very different game from how it looked a few weeks ago when we were thinking, right, this is another game against a top six team. Uh, but even so, it's, it's a massive game. And, you know, the first one with fans back, so I think he will he'll rest most of the players uh, with half an eye on that Arsenal game. In theory, right, uh, they can kind of, I know this is a risk, but they could kind of completely bin this game off and like put it all in an Antwerp game, can't they? And still win the group. Because it will come down to head-to-head. Yeah. And so it, 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 even if Antwerp won on Thursday night against Ludogorets, which I guess you'd kind of expect they would, and Spurs lost to LASK, then you've got that game right at the end, home to Antwerp. Antwerp would be on 12 points and Spurs would be on nine. And they've won the first game 1-0, so Spurs would just have to win two by, by two clear goals. Wouldn't it go into one of those mini groups because Lask could also be on that same number of points. And if Lask... Because uh, if, if Lask beat Tottenham and then Lask beat Ludogorets, then they're also going to be on 12 by the end of it. Obviously, it would then depend by what margin Lask beat Tottenham. And Tottenham beat Lask, what was it, 3-0 in that first game? So I think it would then depend on their results against Tottenham and against Antwerp. But they should be okay. So yes, I think they probably would be able to... A 2-0 win against Antwerp would probably do it. For what is worth, what I think they should do is not take Kane. For once, not take Hoiberg. Uh, stick Son on the bench. Play Bale. You know, work out which of Bergvine and... Lucas they're going to play against Arsenal assuming they're not going to start Bayern in that game maybe they will uh, you know play that player Vinicius obviously got a couple of goals and assists so he should be a bit more confident uh, again work out who you're going to play in midfield against Arsenal and play Lo Celso or whoever in midfield I mean that should be enough to get a result in that game surely James you sound like a man who doesn't particularly care really you're just fully fo- <laughs> fully focused on Arsenal is that fair? I mean that's a, that's a strong team that sounds like a strong team to me. Underestimating LASK Linz. It's probably more that I'm overestimating Arsenal, if anything. Yeah, well, how, how are you feeling about Arsenal? Oh, Be God, honest. It is terrible, isn't it? It's Tell just, me how you really uh, feel. It's, it's just the most inevitable Spurs not winning against Arsenal I think I've ever seen. <laughs> it just feel, okay, it's just so obvious, isn't it, that they should beat them. Which, I, 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 I know people who don't listen to podcasts to hear people be really pessimistic, just out of like a sense of tradition almost. But, I, you know, we've been in this position so many times where like Spurs have felt like they're coming for us and Arsenal are wavering. And obviously it's diff- different this time because Spurs have been better than Arsenal for the last like three, four, five years. Fine. But it, I, I don't know. There's something there's something about it that makes me very uneasy. I like the fact that everyone would expect Spurs to win. Uh, and, and to be abundantly clear, I'll be disappointed if they only win by one goal probably. Uh, they should smash them, shouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, that's what I really want to see. That's what I need to see. I do think there is, maybe every derby is like this, but the Northern Derby is one of the most neurotic derbies there is. I mean, it, you know, in some games you have fans trash talking the others. Northern derbies to me always seem like both sets of fans are just coming up with reasons why somehow their team will contrive to lose it. Um, I do think, like, reassuringly for Tottenham, there have been others like that, though, when you think of, like, in that 16-17 season where Spurs were flying uh, under Pochettino and they hadn't lost a home all season and Arsenal were on the decline and there were fears that, oh, but you know Arsenal could rouse themselves for this and in the end Spurs beat them 2-0 in one of the most comfortable, dismissive 2-0s you'll ever see. So I think there is precedent for them even you know in, in a pretty similar scenario just stepping up and delivering. But, you know, it's a derby. There are fans. Form but goes out the window, etc., etc. Right, yeah. 
I mean, it is interesting because when Arsenal were like clearly much, much better than Spurs, I can't think of too many times. I, I mean, I don't think Spurs ever got absolutely smashed by Arsenal in that time. There was a 3-0. The 3-0, really, yeah. And then he ran the length of the pitch to celebrate, you know, that thing that Arsenal fans never talk about when they moan about Adebayor. And, and I guess those two, but those two, those two five twos were once the dynamic had kind of changed a little bit and Spurs are a bit more competitive. So like, obviously they lost by three goals, but it kind of felt like that was when they were slightly more even. But when, when Spurs were, were clearly much worse, they never, they always seemed to raise their game when they played Arsenal. And I'd always be convinced that whenever Spurs played Arsenal, even if they were in terrible form and they were like 10, 15 places lower in the league than Arsenal, like but they would at least turn up in that game. And they gen- they generally did. And as you know, Charlie, I watched Premier League years 2001-2002 last week or the week before. Big time. And that's like a prime example. That Spurs team was not a particularly good team. It was Sol Campbell's first time back at White Hart Lane. And they played really well. Actually, I had forgotten this, but they played really well and should have won that game probably. Uh, and ended up drawing 1-1 against an Arsenal team that went on to win the league. And they Spurs probably finished 10th uh, or whatever. That is all playing on my mind now that I kind of feel like the dynamic is maybe almost completely switched. And... Uh, yeah, you know, I, I just have a horrible feeling that Arsenal, having played like absolute jokers for a few weeks, will actually turn up. They'll basically be mugging their own fans up if they do that as well. That's the, that's the worst thing about it. And I, I don't want to see Arsenal fans get mugged off. The return game that season as well was 2-1 and it was that was the one where Lauren scored a late penalty in the run-in. It was also really close. I mean, there were tons of draws in that period. A lot of kind of one-alls and narrow wins. As someone with no uh, no emotional stake in this game at all, I feel very comfortable saying that I'm sure that Spurs are going to win easily they're just miles better like Arsenal was so bad like speaking of like you know getting things wrong I was uh I was really bullish on Arteta in the kind of marketplace of takes but then I thought it was gonna be really really good and like turn them into City but they're terrible like Arsenal are so bad like they're so slow and boring and they don't create anything they are I know you know they did really well obviously to win the cup semi-final and final with like kind of tactically clever one-off displays but they've done better against better teams generally yeah yeah, they're going to have to do that on Saturday, on Sunday aren't they they're going to have to like do a kind of back to the wall counter-attacking display and it might work but then Mourinho won't the one thing we know about Mourinho this season is that he's not going to he's not going to play into teams hands like that like he's always willing to to step back and let the other team have the ball and not walk into their trap like there's no way that they're going to play like city did in the cups in the cup semi final or like chelsea did in the cup final no chance so it could be boring it could be like a dead no- it could actually be a little bit like the chelsea game if spurs are going to be much much better than arsenal which you know in theory they are then i really want them to kind of exert that in the game I know, you know, and having said, I'd be disappointed if they won by one goal. Obviously, that's that's nonsense. I'd be very happy, but I, I would, I'd like, I just for once, I'd just like to see Spurs just wipe the floor with Arsenal. Even if, even if Spurs, sorry, even if Arsenal park the bus, which I think they might do, I like Spurs are good enough to score. Like those, those that Spurs attack is good enough to create and score against Arsenal's kind of ropey, ropey defense. Yeah, but I do think it could be one of those games where neither team really wants to get on the front foot too early, uh, too much too early in any case. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're obviously they're the form. The form suggests they should win that game easily. But yeah, I, I don't. I, I just don't think. Maybe he will surprise us. Maybe Mourinho will surprise us and, and just go for it. But that is pr- to a degree what Arsenal will want. So I think he uh, they'll be more patient. But yeah, I think ultimately, Jack, you're right. They will. Um, even if Arsenal come and make it difficult for them um, you would think Spurs would ultimately have enough especially with the quality they'll have on the bench to throw on if if it is 0-0 in the 70th minute so and how do we feel about the return of fans Charlie what sort of an atmosphere are you expecting if any no idea I mean it's going to be it's it's really hard to imagine you know what the acoustics are going to be like um, how much it will feel like a proper atmosphere, whether it will feel weird, the fact that you've only got one set of fans. I mean, what that would be like if the away team scores in any of these games, how intimidating that's going to be for the visiting teams. It's all unknowns. Um, it, it will be really interesting to see and, and how it sounds uh, on the day. James, what do you think it's going to be like? My name's in the hat, so oh, cool. we'll see what cool. happens. When do you find out? Uh, I mean, I think it's I presumably quite soon. I think it's today the, the, the ballot closes. But yeah, I think it's what is it two two thousand tickets? It is mad to think that after all this time, you can be thrown back in, 
And you, the first game back is at home to Arsenal with Spurs top of the league. And the caveat there, and I know we said right at the top of the show that Spurs are top of the league. As we record this at top of the league, if Leicester beat Fulham 6-0, which we can't rule out, then Leicester will be top of the league. You know, So don't think I'm not on top of these things because I am. But Spurs near the top of the league or <laughs> top of the league. In and around the top uh, of the league. Home, home to Arsenal, who are 14th. It is mad to think that could be the first game back. I mean, it sort of feels like that's like destiny almost, uh, like like I'm destined to be disappointed. But we'll we'll, uh, we'll see how we go. It is funny though, isn't it? Thinking back to that Norwich game, which was the last uh, game at Spurs with fans, you know, being told then, next time there are fans, Tottenham are going to be top um, and Arsenal are going to be 14th. You should be like, what sort of what has happened to the world like it has been yeah kind how of long? yeah how long is it going to be and what how has everything been turned upside down james would you be sitting in your normal seat or would they put the 2000 in a different place or what yes yeah, so i think from what from what they said last week that most of those 2000 fans or certainly the kind of uh the standard season ticket holders of those fans will be just all in the south stand so all in the the big stand behind the goal um yeah, quite how that will be spread out, I'm not sure. But um, I, I think the thinking is that that is going to be acoustically slightly more impressive than just dotting 2,000 people around a stadium, which yeah. I mean, would just be an absolute joke. But yeah, you're right. The noise is going to be so weird. It's going to be the weirdest step of getting people back in, isn't it? For, mm. I think from the players in terms of the experience, because that's just going to be such a such a weird number of people to be in a stadium of that size. I mean, like further down the pyramid, it will kind of make sense because, you know, It'll be 2,000 people in a stadium that holds 8,000 people. is isn't going to be that weird. But yeah, in a ground like that, it's just going to be absolute nonsense. But it is better than nothing. I think I think most people would agree with that. Although actually, from a financial perspective, I guess some clubs probably wouldn't. <laughs> You're right. It's good to have them all in one place because it, it means that the, like, the players can shoot towards the fans in a meaningful yeah. sense. So they obviously like, in practice, that South Stand holds, what, 20,000 people? Rough give or take. So it'll be like yeah, it 10% be like that, full. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a really cool occasion. I was going, so I was going to watch it in the Clissold Park Tavern, which is a, a pub frequented by Arsenal and Spurs fans. And then I realised that, if, like, watching a big derby in a pub like that is actually hell. As much as I like the pub, so I'm going to go there beforehand and then go watch it in a friend's garden uh, safely and legally afterwards. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward actually to to seeing how it's going to play out because I've got no idea. Although I do, I'm quite confident. Com- Competent, that's not a word, confident and optimistic about Tottenham's chances on the pitch. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. One other thing I want to flag up uh, to our listeners, which I've enjoyed an awful lot this week, has been Spurs posting clips online of the Spurs players playing cricket. Um, I don't know about you guys, I'm a really big cricket fan, and uh, it's just really funny to see them playing cricket in what looks like one of the indoor gyms at the at the training ground. Uh, all, I'll say is, all I'll say is Joe Hart is actually really, really good. Right, so Hart plays at quite a high standard as a teenager I think he was on the books at Worcestershire and you can tell that he's played before and then the rest of the players from Kane, Reguilon, Ben Davis, Jack Clark, Dyer, Delhi, are kind of varying levels of kind of competent to you know sort of park player to never played before uh, but it's fun and worth looking if you're into that kind of thing. I mean Joe Hart I, I've always I've long had this view of him as kind of very much a uni first team keeper kind of vibe the way he carries himself yeah. sort of bops around bit of a jack the lad uh, and actually going the to the dog. games the heart dog and going to the games you hear his constant chatter and it's you know it's very kind of uni football and I just always picture him kind of tie on 
strutting around on the Wednesday AU night like he owns the place. And this whole... I think we named a university, didn't we, before? When we, t- when we talked about this before, we yeah. named a university Loughborough? we think he would have gone to. Do you think Loughborough? I wasn't going to name it on the podcast, but yeah, fine. That way it was uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because, you know, Loughborough's really good for sport and he seemed, you know, the cr- cricket has confirmed, uh, you know, his standards. So I just imagine him kind of that uni student who is always at home in kind of the uni first team stash with a protein yeah. shake bottle, kind of always vaguely within reach, PS4 controller in the other hand, um, and just sort of like sitting down on his sofa, holding forth, kind of dishing out banter to the other lads. Um, and, and this has only reinforced that. So yeah, great content. He definitely loves dishing out banter and just like dishing, but also <laughs> dishing out respect. Yeah. Like there was a great moment. Like I don't mean, that this is going to sound like I'm taking the piss. This is actually me being honest. There was a really nice moment after the... Um, the game last week, the Europa League game, where Hart Hart came off like with a few minutes left, and Whiteman came on, and then at the end, like Hart was doing big like hugs and high fives for all the kids who who got to play the last few minutes. And it's clear that he, you know, he's only been at Spurs recently; he's only played like five games for Spurs, but he just relishes being like that, that big dressing room guy, like mm. you know. And he's and he's earned the right because he's won the Premier League twice for City, he's played tournaments for England. Like he's ha- people take the piss out of Hart, and I kind of, and I kind of understand. I do understand why to an extent, but he's still like had a really good. He's had a great career. He's one of England's best keepers of the modern era. He's one of the Premier League's best keepers of the last twenty to thirty years, I think. And he's you know a bloody he's good earned cricketer. the right to be a big. He's a, a very good cricketer, and I think he's earned the right to be a big personality. And I know people, you know, like. <laughs> Uh, like smug Twitter dickheads like us <laughs> like to take the piss out of him. But I actually, you know, I think he's fine. I yeah, like no, I, it comes genuinely comes from a real place of fondness. And I think there aren't enough, like, you know, we often say there aren't enough kind of characters. And he, he is a character and, I, and he genuinely is really popular at the club. So, um, yeah, yeah, totally. And I completely, and when you see like the way that he interacts with the youngsters or the way that he like plays cricket in the gym or the way that he kind of gives a big high five to Scarlet and Whiteman and, and Harvey White and stuff. He's like, I get it. Like, I get why Mourinho got him instead of like just some other, you know, replacement level subkeeper who they could have got from anywhere else in Europe to come and to come and be the number two to Hugo Lloris this season. Given that you know people have always said about Spurs that they they just need a little bit more spark and energy and personality in the dressing room. And of course, Hoybjerg gives them that, and is also like a top top level holding midfielder. Whereas Hart has come in and also given them a lot of that energy and personality. So I think it's. I, I really like him and I'm, I'm pleased to see him seemingly like happy, settled and flourishing at Tottenham. Okay, guys, we're going to finish with the quiz, which we know is popular. We've only, we've got to do this in five and a half minutes because we've got a Zoom call running so we can see each other's faces while we do this. But we are, uh, that Zoom has got five and a half minutes left on and, and it's actually like a massive faff to do a new one. A one in so, the eye there for those uh, who call your quizzes unprofessional, Jack. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so uh, this week's topic is... Marie is Park the Bus. So, as I'm sure you know, Park the Bus uh, was invented uh, when Martin Yol against Mourinho, September Jack 2004. Jack Santini. Jack Santini. Mate. Oh, my God. I fucked it up already. <laughs> what a buzz. Jack Santini. Christ. Oh, my God. Can we come back from this? Well, anyway. Nil-nil uh, <laughs> draw at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea against Tottenham. Uh, September 2004. Can you name the Tottenham team? It's really hard. Who's going first? I think I'll need to go first because I can only think of like a few. Um, oh, I'm going to win this. This is going to be great. Uh, Robbo? Paul Robinson? In goal? Yes, Robinson. Uh, oh, crikey. Ledley King? Yep, Ledley King. Uh, oh, I remember uh, Robbie Keane because he should have got a penalty and he then asked the ref if it wasn't a penalty would then book me for diving. Yeah, Robbie Keane, correct. And I think all that extra stuff gets me three bonus points. <sighs> no, 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 no. Uh, okay, I, I, I'm not 100% sure on this actually, but I'm gonna, just going to go through what I see as the team from that season. And I'm going to say Eric Edmund. Yep, Edmund. Um, based on the fact that he scored in the North London derby a couple of months off. Oh no, wait, is that? Yeah, uh, Nordin Nabet. Yep, neighbour. Well done, very good. Who else played neighbor. that game? Nye N- N- Pamero. Yes, Pamero, correct. Yes. Come on, three all. Um, 
Was a tuba there? Yes, a tuba. Come well on. done. You guys are really good at this. That's me. You're all I over the place by now. To be honest, you've got the hard ones. The four remaining players. We've Sean, got just Davis, over Sean three Davis. Minutes. Can I say Sean Davis? Davis, yes. Uh, Defoe? Defoe, yes. Well done. So we're on. That puts Charlie on as we've got nine. So that makes Charlie's fifth point. James scored four points. There's two points left on the board. And they're not that hard compared to some of the players who have already been selected. Clue, they're both midfielders. You've got two midfielders to come. Oh, three right. Just under three minutes on the clock. Pedro Mendes? Pedro Mendes, correct. One player left on the board. He's he's a midfielder. We've got two and a half minutes left on the Zoom call before we all get wrapped up. So I'm trying to think. I think I'm I think Genus came the following for the following season. I don't because he scored that free kick at Old Trafford, but I think that was the year after. Um Or was it? It was, it be, was don't interfere like that. Don't interfere like that. That's bad. <laughs> and you know it, fella. Um, it's a yellow card. So it's a midfielder. Mendes, Davis. Um, Brown? No, Brown is not correct. You've got two minutes left on the clock. James, your chance to win the quiz. Uh, Simon Davis. Oh, Christ. No, no. So that... So Davis is correct, but he's not the answer to the quiz because Hang on. when you said Sean Davis earlier, I said, yes, I think it's actually Simon Davis oh rather than Sean Davis. God. Let me just double That's check amazing. this. And we are really up against oh, it time-wise here. Uh, let's let's end, I'm end sorry. this podcast. We have a minute to go. Please just, just end it. Uh, so which Davis was it? Simon. It was Simon Davis. It was not Sean Davis. So we've <laughs> okay, still so got so, we've still got one player left to get. One minute left on the podcast. Okay, so if, Char- if Charlie gets this, he's won. So yeah. the- I'll give you another clue. It's an English midfielder. An English midfielder. An time. English midfielder. Uh, okay, I know who it is. If you know it, just say it because we're on the clock. It's a Michael Carrick. No. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> oh, I know. Is it is it Michael Brown? I just no. said Michael Brown. Uh, it's not Michael Brown. It's not Michael Carrick. Huddleston, it's not Sean Davis. Too early for Huddleston. It's not Huddleston. It's not Genus. We're about to wrap up. Uh, less than one minute ago. Jamie Redner. Correct. Oh. It is Jamie Redner. <laughs> that is literally all we've got time for. Uh, but thank you very much to James and Charlie. Well played, James, for winning the quiz. Thank you, producer Tom. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. I hope you've made it all the way to the end of the podcast. Uh, and yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again after the North London Derby next Sunday. Thank you very much.